For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dana. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Phil is back next week, and uh, it, is a, it is an honor to share a message that the Lord has laid on my heart this morning from Psalm 85. If you have your Bibles with you, Psalm 85. We'll be turning there momentarily. Those of you who've heard me before know that I like titles. I'm a titles type guy, so I give two options usually. Here's the first option, spiritual spinach for the fatigued soul. If that is a little too wordy for you, then you can choose kickstart my heart. Kickstart my heart. The seeds for this morning's conversation were planted seven or eight months ago while I was listening to a CBC radio piece on the global phenomenon of societal fatigue. Not the lack of physical vim and vigor and energy, while that certainly exists for many, but fatigue on an existential, on a soul and spirit level. It is a crisis that cultural commentators have subdivided into multiple categories when trying to denote multiple areas of psychological weariness. At last count, we had pandemic fatigue, media fatigue, compassion fatigue, Zoom fatigue, conversation fatigue, news fatigue, and you can add your own fatigues to that list. That report that I heard seven or eight months ago resonated deeply within my spirit because I have found personally over the last two years that the top two responses to my question of people, how are you doing, and you can probably guess them, it's been the double punch of, I'm so busy, quickly followed by, I'm so tired. And usually, it's been a both and instead of either or. Those responses are telling in that they're also reflective of how I usually find myself responding when people ask, how are you doing? It's usually, I'm really busy, I'm really tired. A caregiver quoted in an April 25th New York Times piece aptly captured the ethos of existential fatigue when she said, I am so tired of everything. Is it going to be over, she asked regarding the pandemic. And then she said, I just want it all to be over. Or for those of you who are young enough or old enough to remember Popeye the Sailor Man, Every time before he popped open a can of spinach, which would make his muscles huge, he would say, I've had alls I can stands. I can't stands no more. That's a pretty good definition of fatigue. In the 1800s, people used the word cumbered. We sing it, are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Those aren't things that you make pickles of. The word cumbered means... Troubled, harassed, burdened, weighed down, overloaded, inconvenienced, hampered, or hindered. Moderns prefer the word overwhelmed. Potato or potato. They're all words used to describe a fatigue of the soul. Theologian John Calvin described the Old Testament book of Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul 
As such, Psalm 85 speaks both into and across our existential climate of being cumbered with a load of care. Psalm 85 speaks to all of you this morning who, like the lady quoted in the New York Times, feels, I am so tired of everything. Or maybe you feel like Popeye. I've had all as I can stands. I can't stands no more. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we don't have to ask you to come because you're here already. I pray now that you would anoint these feeble words of mine. I pray that you would speak and I pray that we would hear your voice loud and clear this morning. May you renew us. May you revive us. Would you refresh us? I pray especially for those of us this morning here online who are feeling fatigued in our spirit. May you kickstart our heart this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. The majority of scholars agree that Psalm 85 was written somewhere between 600 and 500 B.C. The children of Israel had been exiled in Babylon for 70 years. They'd returned home, but their expectations were not fulfilled. Everything was not up and to the right as they'd expected. And so before long, they found themselves victims of soul fatigue. Psalm 85 is written both from and for the person who feels like they're on their last legs. Not if, but when you have given all that you have and it still hasn't seemed to be enough. Not if, but when you feel like you're running on fumes. Not if, but when your get up and go has got up and went. The prayer begins by acknowledging God's grace in the past. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all of our sin. You have taken away all of your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. The psalmist is looking back and he is drawing hope from the way that God has moved in days gone by. The first three verses draw our attention to things like God's generosity, his restoration, his forgiveness, his restraint. When I shared a word two weeks ago, I warned us about be careful that you're always looking up, way up. Don't be captivated by what's on this side or this side behind you or too far in the future. I wasn't saying don't ever look back. I was just saying don't get stuck looking back. It's important and it's healthy and it's beneficial to look back and see the many ways that God has manifested himself in the past. Verse 4 transitions into the need for the here and now. Here it is we find the cry of the fatigued soul. Verse 4, restore us, O God of our salvation. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? These words, revive and restore, point to invigoration, bringing new life. Revival is the spiritual defib paddles used to kickstart one's heart. 
And it is not unique to the Old Testament. In Matthew 11, we find Jesus stretching out his arms to an audience both then and now and inviting, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you What a tremendous promise. Because every single one of us will go through desert seasons in which our souls will feel like they are dry. And when we find ourselves in those desert places, we need to be reminded that we don't have to stay there. The desert is not our destiny. One of the bridges of the songs that we sing here says, where there is death, he brings life. Where there is fear, he brings courage. When we are afraid, he is with us. He's lifting us up. He's lifting us up. So this morning's big idea is not only does God save us from the death and destruction of sin, he continually revives us and refreshes us and renews us. When we are barely hanging on, he kickstarts our heart. In a sense, we are God's salvage projects. While none of the king's horses and none of the king's men can put our busted Humpty Dumpty lives back together again, the king takes all of those broken pieces and he doesn't just fix us up. The scripture says that he makes us New. Dewey and Jean, you'd remember this song. Something beautiful, something good. All of my confusion he understood. All that I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. Oh, but he made something beautiful out of my life. The only cure for soul fatigue is the revival and renewal that the Lord imparts. One of the reasons that we pray for revival and renewal is because God never designed the walk of our faith to be a chore that we get through just by gritting our teeth. He never intended our relationship with Him to be a drudgery or a duty, but rather a vibrant life of passion, of excitement, joy, unspeakable joy that we sang about a couple minutes ago that spills over onto everyone in our circle of influence. Now, when I say joy, I'm not talking about laughing like the village idiot when our lives are falling apart at the seams. We have all met people like that. They're getting kicked in the teeth and they're still laughing. All is good. Here's a definition of joy that I found. I don't know who wrote it, but I thought it was really good. Biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances, with inner contentment and satisfaction, because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish his work in and through our lives. It doesn't mean you're laughing all the time. I love what Nancy DeMoss says. Excuse me, I have a cold, and so I'm really dry, and I'm going to be doing this a few times today. 
I have learned, she says, that in every circumstance that comes my way, I can choose to respond in one of two ways. I can either whine or I can worship. I wish I could tattoo this on my forehead, but my forehead's not big enough. I can either whine or I can worship, and I cannot worship without giving thanks. It is impossible. When we choose to worship and give thanks, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances, there is a fragrance, there is a radiance that issues forth out of our lives to bless the Lord and others. A fragrance, a radiance that issues forth out of our life. This is really personal to me this week, and I'll tell you why. I had an hour to be home where I just wanted to lay down before I had another meeting. And so I went home, and my wife was, oh shoot, this is online, this is recorded. I'm too far down the road, I can't take it back. My wife was burning a smelly candle about this tall, and it was encased in glass, and it made the house smell like a forest or something when I walked in. She had just blown that out before I walked into the room. I laid down on the bed, and when I lay down on the bed in my house, that is the universal sign for my dog to say, it's time to play. <laughs> so I lay down on my bed. The dog jumped up on the bed with a toy in his mouth. I was laying on my belly. I picked the toy, and I threw it without looking. Guess what the toy hit? You got her. That beautiful smelling candle that was this high, that was encased in glass, shattered into a million pieces. And because the, the wax was still hot, all of the pieces of the candle stuck in the glass. So the floor looked like a porcupine. Now, it was a good smelling porcupine, but that led to the rest of my afternoon uh, cleaning up the smelly porcupine. But I felt bad enough for breaking my wife's candle that I, I spent about 40 minutes finding another couple. So did you realize that there's a whole industry around smelly candles? I, it's, a, it's a subculture. Um, the smelly, it is. And, and you can find things that smell everything from cinnamon buns to um, dirty feet to, now it's not labeled dirty feet, but it smells like dirty feet. And, so, so I spent 40 minutes trying to find a couple of candles that would replace the one that I broke. All of that to say, when we choose to give thanks, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances, there is a fragrance. There is a radiance. There is, our lives become a smelly candle that bless the Lord and others. And so here's my homework for you this afternoon. Don't ask yourself, because the scriptures say our hearts are deceitful above all things. Ask the person who knows you best. If your life was a smelly candle, what would the fragrance be? If your life was a smelly candle, what would the fragrance be? Therapist Shannon Alder says, when we are joyful, when we say yes to life and have fun and project positivity all around us, we become a sun in the center of every constellation and people want to be near us. And so my question to you this morning is, do they? Do people want to be near you? When we walk through the front door, 
Our, are our friends, our spouse, our kids, our co-workers, our pets, are they glad to see us walk through the door? I've been thinking about this a lot. If the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah is correct when stating that the joy of the Lord is the Christian's strength, how do we explain the vast number of non-Christians who seem to be having a blast compared to the army of Christians we know who act like they've been sucking on lemons since they've been born? They're like Eeyore's with a rain cloud following them around wherever they go. This has little to do with whether we're an introvert or an extrovert. It has nothing to do with the power of positive thinking. It has nothing to do with whether you see the glass half empty or half full. It's all about, do people enjoy being in our company? Are we a breath of fresh air to other people? Joel hit on this last week when talking about one of the uses of salt. It's used to enhance the flavor, to make things brighter. An old song sings, brighten the corner where you are. Are we? Winston and I put our minds together this week. When is the last time that you saw a Christian portrayed in a mainstream movie or television show that was lovable and or likable? Other than Ned Flanders, we couldn't think of anybody. It's a reality that Steve Brown boldly confronts when suggesting, if there is no laughter, then Jesus has gone somewhere else. If there is no joy and freedom, it isn't a church. It's simply a crowd of melancholy people basking in a religious neurosis. If there is no celebration, he says, there is no real worship. Before challenging, we ought to live our life with such freedom and joy that uptight Christians will doubt our salvation. Amen. We ought to live our life with such freedom and joy that uptight Christians will doubt our salvation. Pope John Paul II said, Christians are the Easter people and hallelujah is our song. He was merely riffing on St. Augustine who said that a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Christ followers pray and claim Psalm 85 because Jesus didn't come into this world to make our lives more manageable. He invaded this world to make our life abundant. The result being not only will our lives be kick-started. The new life we experience will inevitably spill onto all those that are in our sphere of influence. Are you, here's another homework question for you. Are you leaking joy upon all those around you? Are you leaking joy upon all those around you? Joyful living is a critical component of our witness, of our testimony. And as we are renewed and revived and refreshed, we become signposts pointing others to the giver of life. Listen, in person and online. As we are renewed and revived and refreshed, we become signposts pointing others to the giver of life in person 
and online. I remember the day when evangelism was primarily defined by how many strangers' doors you knocked on and how many flyers you handed out to people. Can I be bold enough this morning to suggest that one of the most effective evangelism techniques we might ever utilize is allowing God to transform us into a fun, positive, likable person that people just love seeing walk into the room? Are we breathing life into those that God brings our way? Verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 85 present the condition of our hearts in order to best receive God's grace. The position or posture of our souls to receive God's revival is an eyes wide open, heart longing expectancy. Tis the season that we picture a child going to bed on Christmas Eve who can't get to sleep because of what they're hoping to find the next morning. Verse 8 says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. The message translation translates that. I can't wait to hear what God is going to say. This is the head and heart space of the boy Samuel in the temple in the middle of the night when he said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. This is the spirit of Advent. Standing on tiptoe, eyes and ears wide open to receive whatever it is that the Lord has to give us. Because if, when, and as we do, verse 8 continues, he will speak peace to his people and his saints. If and when our soul is weary and fatigued, words of peace from the Prince of Peace are exactly what we need to hear. The Lord knows that we hear more than enough words of chaos and confusion. Verse 8 concludes with an interesting warning. Let them, let us, not turn back to folly. Let us not turn back to folly. The word folly is referring specifically to a lack of sensitivity, of openness to the Holy Spirit. The psalmist understands that complacency is a natural symptom and result of soul fatigue. Have you ever noticed that when your soul is tired, it becomes a lot easier to let things slide? When your soul is tired, it becomes a lot easier to take the foot off the gas, to treat our relationships with less fervor and passion and intention. The psalmist is warning about losing our edge, of becoming comfortably numb, of allowing our relationship with God to cool, seldom is a spiritual suicide as dramatic as the flick on and off of a switch. More often, the death is a gradual fade to black. It's like the slow leak in a tire that is ignored or overlooked or unforeseen until the moment you jump in your car and you go to drive somewhere and you realize that something is drastically wrong. The poet T.S. Eliot was prolific and prophetic when stating in his poem, The Hollow Men, this is how the world will end, not with a bang, but a whimper. This too is how many spiritual lives die, becoming lukewarm, letting things slip and slide, playing fast and loose with what we know God desires, acknowledging certain sins, but accepting or justifying them as being okay, treating Jesus as ornamental 
rather than essential? Some of us have learned the hard way that one of the quickest ways to kill a friendship, a marriage, a career, a church is simply to let things slide. Alongside complacency, another primary symptom of soul fatigue is a hypersensitivity to and defiant protection of self. The oft-heard whine of the fatigued soul is, it's not fair, combined with, it's my right. I don't know about you, I'm 49, and I cannot remember a time in which I have heard as many people moaning and groaning and cranking and complaining and posting and blogging about what I believe is fair and what I believe is right and what I want and what I don't want and what I think I deserve. Over the last few years, the Holy Spirit has been showing me that the more aligned my compass is to Jesus and to pointing other people to Jesus, the less time, effort, energy, or desire I'll have to whine about how unfair life is or to beat the drum for what I assume my rights to be. Before being hung in a concentration camp by the Nazi regime, Christian theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously stated, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Bonhoeffer was merely echoing his master. Jesus in John 12 said, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new life. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. The next time you're tempted to climb aboard the crank and complain train, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Give up your own way. Give up your own way. Some translations say, deny yourselves. Take up your cross and follow me. In order for us to know life to the full, we must daily die to self, praying as Jesus did the night he was arrested. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want. Let us not turn back to folly, warns the psalmist. How intensely are we seeking to be transformed by our master? How eagerly do we await his touch? Do we await his voice? For those of you who have pets and who love pets, you'll get this. For those of you who don't, you won't. It doesn't matter if I've been outside for three minutes emptying the garbage or if I come home after being away for three days it doesn't matter. My Boston Terrier is standing at the front door, tongue hanging out, entire body vibrating. He's unable to contain himself in the hopes of receiving one word or one pat from his master. Oh, if only my desire, my longing, my passion 
to hear and learn from the Lord would equal that of my dog. That upon opening my eyes each day, my prayer would be, what do you have for me today, Lord? What do you want to show me today, God? What have you got waiting for me? The psalmist started by looking back at God's faithfulness in the past in order to bolster our hope. They bookend their message by looking ahead to what's before us. Verses 10 to 13, we have the promises for the fatigued soul. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. The Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Lord, make this so today. On Tuesday evening, I love it when Hollywood gets it right. I was watching a show on Tuesday evening that has nothing to do with the Lord. And one of the characters said this, the trick to fixing something is knowing that no matter how destroyed something is, it can always be saved. Can I say that again? The trick to fixing something is knowing that no matter how destroyed something is, it can always be saved. That is the gospel in capital letters coming from a Hollywood show. Psalm 85 reminds us that not only is God present when we hit rock bottom, but he loves to revive and renew and refresh and restore life whenever we feel hopeless, helpless, and fatigued. God loves bringing the dead and the near dead back to life. I'm going to ask Winston and the band to come back, and just as they do, As they come back, just a couple questions for us to contemplate before we close in song this morning. When is the last time that you looked back and celebrated God's faithfulness? Here's some more homework for you this afternoon. Think about his generosity. Think about his restoration. Think about his forgiveness and his restraint. Maybe there's some of you here this morning or watching online, who the enemy has succeeded in convincing you that you've dropped the ball one too many times. You're one short step away from throwing in the towel altogether because all you can hear playing on the soundtrack to your life is the deceiver's lyric that you're a loser. All you can see when you look in the mirror is your own failures. If that's where you're at this morning, the reason you're here is to hear God say to you, that there is no expiry date or limitations on his reservoir for renewal and revival and refreshing. Whenever and for whatever reasons our spiritual batteries are running low, he is ready, willing, and able to kickstart our fatigued heart. Maybe some of us have gotten into a rut or routine in which the joy of the Lord is no longer our strength, in fact, some of us may find it hard to remember what the joy of the Lord even looks or feel like, feels like. Our journey of faith has become an obligation we fulfill 
a box that we tick, rather than the adventure for which we were created. Do people enjoy being in your company? Is our relationship with God marked by an eager expectation by which we are standing on tiptoe, eyes and ears wide open? What do you have for me today, God? And so this morning, if your soul is feeling fatigued and overwhelmed, if you feel like Popeye the sailor man, that you've had all you can stand, you can't stand no more, please hear God's invitation to you. It's the same as the one he shared with his New Testament audience. Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will, he says, give you. Give me. Give us rest. Praise his name. Would you stand as we close in song?